Hello, Hopeful. I'm Roger Corville, and this is For the Hope's Daily Audio Bible. Here, we read through the scriptures conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn to fall more in love with Jesus and the people in His world. Welcome. Let's be honest. One of the real challenges of reading the whole Bible cover to cover is that some stuff just doesn't really comport with how we think about the world. I mean, we like the stuff about love, like we're going to hear about in 1 Corinthians 13 today, and there's that weird stuff about God's holiness and the necessity for my holiness, which I fail miserably at, like we've been reading about in Leviticus, and it's what we see around the love stuff in 1 Corinthians 13. And my friends, I think it's what invites us to follow Jesus Because no spiritual gift, no natural ability, no human achievement is greater or more important than love, a love that you won't fully understand without the weird stuff. And I do love calling it the weird stuff, my friends, because here as we read through the Bible, Monday through Saturday, the whole Bible in a year, reading through every single word of God's revelation of himself, what we end up with is bumping into stuff that is just frankly weird. For instance, if you're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 through 14 are really about chaotic worship, right? And Then we get this famous love chapter, and we love the love chapter, and I do too. We're going to get to that. But the issue here is likely, in the Corinthian church that Paul's writing to, is likely chaotic worship with a preference, maybe an undue preference, for speaking in tongues and speaking gifts as evidence of this Holy Spirit. And this is likely linked to pagan ecstatic worship practices and the penchant for rhetoric, which Paul rejects, right? He says that everybody's gifted, gifted equally but differently, and he urges orderly worship in understandable language, meaning Greek or translated tongues. Now, here's the interesting thing. In typical kind of writing of that time, you, you know who you've heard from me that a psalm very often puts the main point of the psalm right smack in the middle? Right? Like if there was one, two, three verses, it's verse two that's the that's the main point. Well, that's that's how First Corinthians thirteen is nestled in between chapters on spiritual gifts in this bigger picture. So the love stuff relates to the weird stuff. Now the very last line of First Corinthians twelve is But desire the greater gifts. And I will show you an even better way. And that leads to this. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, 
is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. But then, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. All right, my friends, that is... That is 1 Corinthians 13. And I know if you were... If we took a step back, it's hard to imagine that in the middle of a bunch of people arguing about about how to take communion and head coverings and just stuff that just seems completely weird to us. And as we transition here, we're going to close up the back of Leviticus today. And uh, if you're newer around here, you notice know that I I often don't take so long to go through the weird stuff. But I want to just recap where we've been in Leviticus. Because remember, from Exodus 19, another 10 chapters into the book of Numbers, we're sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we'll come back to that because there's a pattern that we'll see throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. But I want to see what is special about the book of Leviticus. Number one, it's, it's that the Holy Lord is present in the midst of his people. We saw that in Exodus 40. We see that in the very first verse of Leviticus. And the people of Israel must therefore properly address their sin and impurity and must strive for personal holiness. Now that is weird to us, right? We don't like to think of personal holiness because... It reminds us that we are not so personally holy, and we live in a world that looks at us as weird, if you think of character and ethics and personal holiness. The second is even crazier. In order to approach God, worshipers must be wholehearted in their devotion. Number three, those who are called to be spiritual leaders, such as priests, bear a heavier responsibility than do the lay people, right? And in addition to the outward holiness that the priests are granted when they are ordained, 
They are constantly commanded to maintain inner holiness. Number four, as we saw uh, in the Day of Atonement ritual in the book in Leviticus, the total cleansing of sins and uncleanness is done when the innermost part of the tent of meeting is purified. Ultimate purification of uncleanness is impossible from the human side. Ah, what do we get there? It means that God has to do the do the business from the inside out. Right? And number five, atonement is a gracious act of the Lord by which sins and impurities can be dealt with. We saw that back in chapter 17. So as we get to the end of Leviticus, last chapter is 27, we get to this piece that just in some ways is an appendix to the grand finale that we just kind of got through with the blessings and cursings, which is kind of like the end of the contract. So think about this as as perhaps suggestions for appropriate ways to respond to the lifestyle choice posed by the blessing and curse stuff that we just read. Okay? Leviticus 27. The Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when someone makes a special vow to the Lord that involves the assessment of people, if the assessment concerns a male from 20 to 60 years old, your assessment is 50 silver shekels, measured by the standard sanctuary shekel. If the person is a female, your assessment is 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 to 20 years old, your assessment for a male is 20 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. If the person is from one month to five years, your assessment for a male is five silver shekels. And for a female, your assessment is three shekels of silver. If the person is 60 years or more, your assessment is 15 shekels of for a male, 10 for a female. But if one is too poor to pay the assessment, he is to present the person before the priest and the priest will set a value for him. The priest will set a value for him according to what the one making the vow can afford. If the vow involves one of the animals that may be brought as an offering to the Lord, any of these he gives to the Lord will be holy. He may not replace it or make a substitution for it, either good or bad, or bad for good. But if he does substitute one animal for another, both that animal and its substitute will be holy. If the vow involves any of the unclean animals that may not be brought as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented before the priest, and the priest will set its value, whether high or low. The price will be set as the priest makes the assessment for you. If the one who brought it decides to redeem it, he must add a fifth to the value assessed it. When a man consecrates his house as a holy, uh, as a holy thing to the Lord, the priest will assess its value, whether high or low. The price will stand just as the priest assessed it. But if the one who consecrated his house redeems it, he must add a fifth to his assessed value, and it will be his. If a man consecrates to the Lord any part of a field that he, that he possesses, your assessment of the value will be proportional to the seed needed to sow it at a rate of 50 silver shekels for every six bushels of barley seed. If he consecrates his field to during the year of Jubilee, the price will stand according to your assessment. But if he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, the priest will calculate the price for him in proportion to the years left until the next year of Jubilee so that your assessment will be reduced. If the one 
one who consecrated the field decides to redeem it, he must add a fifth to its assessed value, and the field will transfer back to him. But if he does not redeem the field, or if he has sold it to another man, it is no longer redeemable. When the field is released in the Jubilee, it will be holy to the Lord like a field permanently set apart. It becomes the priest's property. If a person consecrates to the Lord a field he has purchased that is not part of his inherited land holding, then the priest will calculate for him the amount of the assessment up to the year of Jubilee, and the person will pay the assessed value on the day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field will return to the one who he bought it from, the original owner. All your assessed values will be measured by the standard sanctuary shekel, 20 giras to the shekel. But no one, no one, can consecrate a firstborn of the livestock, whether an animal from the herd or flock, to the Lord, because the firstborn already belongs to the Lord. If it is one of the unclean livestock, it can be ransomed according to your assessment by adding a fifth of its value to it. It is not redeemed. If it's not redeemed, it can be sold according to your assessment. Nothing that a man permanently sets apart to the Lord from all he owns whether a person, an animal, or his inherited land holding can be sold or redeemed, everything set apart is especially holy to the Lord. No person who has been set apart for destruction is to be ransomed. He must be put to death. Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit of the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man decides to redeem any part of his tenth, he must add a fifth to its value. Every tenth animal from the herd or flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He is not to inspect whether it's good or bad. He's not to make a substitution for it. But if he does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute will be holy. They cannot be redeemed. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses for the Israelites on Mount Sinai. What does all that mean, my friends? That wraps up the book of Leviticus. What does that mean? Let me point out just one thing. Every tenth animal from the herd or flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. So, you know, the word tithe means tenth. And here is yet another way of God saying, are you going to try to give me less than your best? Right? Every tenth animal passes under the rod. And you imagine just this lying, long line of sheep bopping along and you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. That was a good one. I'm going to keep that one. So I'll swap in this one. Are you with me? There's a heart level issue there. Now, all of that stuff we just read, I know, deserves greater explanation than what we're going to give it here. But I guess we come back to this bigger question to me. What is the issue of love? What is the issue of love? Well, I'm going to tie that back to 1 Corinthians 13 after we read our wisdom segment today. And I know I'm doing a lot more talking than I should this time around. But to me, I really want us to see how, even in this Old Testament weird stuff, that God's heart is consistent all the way through. We close with our wisdom segment today, which is Psalm 112. And in a, in a way, it is a psalm that relates to the traits of the righteous, which relates to both of the things that we just read. Psalm 112. 
Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. He will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured. He will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked one will see it and be angry. He will gnash his teeth in despair. The desire of the wicked leads to ruin. My friends, the nature of love that we see even in just the first few verses of of 1 Corinthians 13, the nature of love is a heart-level issue. It's more about who we are than what we do. And since who we are is marred from birth until we have the power, the transformative power of God's Holy Spirit, that, my friends, is why we need what Jesus did for us on the cross. Just in the first three verses of of 1 Corinthians 13, we hear of the matchless value of love, right? You think tongues and signs and hearing from God and, and interpreting dreams and using your spiritual gifts and all that, you think that's all awesome? And he's like, I'll show you a better way. Love is greater than beautiful speech. Even if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and use the gift of tongues, love is greater than brilliant scholarship and the gift of knowledge and wisdom. Love is greater than bold spirituality. Yeah, you might stand on a preach corner and do all kinds of stuff, but if you don't have love, what do you got? And love is greater than benevolent sacrifice. So we heard of heart-level issue with, say, how a shepherd would let the sheep pass under the rod, one every ten, and going, okay, that one belongs to the Lord, that one belongs to the Lord. And the question is, am I going to love me and material wealth and that fact that that sheep is a good one and that very next one is a bad one? Oh, we'll give that bad one to the temple. It's just going to get killed as a sacrifice anyway. Or am I going to love God first and foremost? Am I going to trust God first and foremost? My friends, when it comes to each other, how we love God ultimately comes down in how we love each other. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. I'm so busted on that one. My friends, it is permanent. It is preeminent. And more importantly, going back to the where we started today, 
no spiritual gift, no natural ability, no human achievement is greater or more important than love. And that's a love that you will not fully understand without the weird stuff. I love you, my friends. Amen. Amen.